on May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. And we're back. This is Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. <laughs> I'm regular old girl Lewis Fertel. I'm Aida Osman, and I've fostered hesitancy in Lewis now before he even announces himself. <laughs> He's like, is, is she going to try and cut me off again? <laughs> it's okay. I respect the order. I really do. <laughs> I'm Lewis Fertel. See, I'm still doing it. Yeah. It's always some vaudeville routine with Lewis. Well, you like a little razzle-dazzle in your podcast. <laughs> Ira comes in droning. He's like, welcome... Keep it. Like <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock falling asleep. And I want people to know we're here and awake. I just want to welcome people to The Quiet Storm. Uh, was that an all that sketch? No, it was a radio segment. With who? No, it literally was something. Okay, I, I, I think of like, there was an all that sketch called The Velvet Storm or something. What? I want to say Kel Mitchell did it. Everybody needs to look what this up. What is in anyway. the recesses of your mind? I don't understand. <laughs> and all that sketch. Look, you think it's not, I'm cursed with this. It's not up yeah, to you're me. Right, you're right, you're I right. I have to express it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, can we talk about how everyone's Wi-Fi is wilding today? Except for mine. Meaning what? I don't know. I just feel crisp. That's weird. I feel the same way. Maybe it's yours and receiving, receiving us. It's not doing so well, is it? Mm, well, you know, I've given so much um, and now I'm ready to receive. <laughs> I would watch that version of The Sixth Sense where you think it's everybody else's <laughs> Wi-Fi that's messed up. But no, you've not had Wi-Fi for years. <laughs> I see dead zones. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, welcome to the show today. Um, should be very exciting. Um, landmark day. As we're recording, Eric Trump is gay now. I guess that happens. <laughs> okay, I only Wait. saw the headline. You have to explain what that means. <laughs> uh, so this chucklehead mm-hmm. was on <laughs> was on Fox News this morning because that is all that family does. Right. It's fucking WKRP in Cincinnati up in here. <laughs> um, Dr. Johnny, fever and dry cough. That's a reference <laughs> to the pandemic. Okay, go ahead. Eric is talking about how much the gays love his father, Donald Trump, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> Name two. Name half of one, even. The two gays who tweet for the Lincoln Project and Kat McPhee. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh. oh, she's gay now. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, the the person who tweets for her is. Oh, certainly. <laughs> that intern has got to be feeling like shit. We talked about that. Go ahead. What did he say? Yeah. Uh, he said, the LGBT community, they are incredible. Uh, and you should see how they come out in full force for my father every single day. I'm part of that community, and we love the man. Mm, what the fuck? Understand. 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 <laughs> I understand he might live in a community, but does he know what the LGBTQ community is? First of all, LGBTQ, does he even know that stands for Lauren Graham be that queen? He doesn't know that. (laughs) (laughs) Hasn't seen a lick of Gilmore Girls. Mm. 
He's probably seen Parenthood, though. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Braverman family, I yeah. bet, speaks to him. But he hasn't seen the Diane Weist original, so don't even approach me. Has he Has he formally, <laughs> has he responded to this in any way? N- not as of now. And obviously this man is an idiot. <laughs> this man is not playing with a full box of crayons, mm-hmm. right. as you would say. He's playing with a melted box of crayons. <laughs> <laughs> and, he's, and, and, and he's eating them. <laughs> <laughs> I love how you said Aida has he responded to it as if like oh yeah he went and fucked a man on camera to prove yeah. it or whatever <laughs> propositioned Donald for sex a couple times that's how much uh, he loves that man the ratings you know that's a concern to them yeah. uh, listen Eric Trump is about to drop his OnlyFans uh, him and Tyler uh, Posey that's a collab uh, yeah. actually he dropped his OnlyClans oh, nice <laughs> ah. Nice. <laughs> feeling, feeling like Aida this morning <laughs> with these puns. You know what? I hate that that's become a legacy of mine, but I will stand proudly in that truth. I really will. <laughs> Nine ninety nine for a little KKK. Uh, speaking of your legacy. Uh, what I do. Do you know another horrific thing that has happened recently, Lewis? Uh, I'm not sure. You have to tell me. They announced a sequel to Boss Baby. Oh, yeah. uh, Guys, I'm on a social They media. did this to hurt us and for Aida to gain <laughs> I power. Saw, I, I saw it in your Instagram story yeah. and I was shook. In the midst of my social media break, I'm on, a, I'm on like a week-long social media break. I only return to repost that they are making a sequel of Boss Baby. So just if you guys want to know where my, where my priorities lie, that's with that. <laughs> now, is, is it going to be like Problem Child 2 where they introduce like a lady Boss Baby mm. along with him? Who's, you know, voiced by, this is exactly who came to mind, Christine Baranski. Wouldn't she be a good boss baby? You know? Oh, she would be. Why am I not working in the boardrooms? Why am I not, like, making these decisions? Because it's all children, nine months and younger. You don't, so you don't, you don't fit the qualifications. Oh, all right. Guys, this, this joke, this running joke, it's been about a year. I think I'm about to hit my year mark here with you guys. And you know what? We can, mm-hmm. we can kill it. We can kill the, we can kill the boss baby. <laughs> we can do it right here. In two more weeks, we will be hitting our 150th episode. So yeah. you have been here for 50. Wow. Wow. Guys, wow. A whole year. That's insane. Our sesquicentennial. That's what 150 is. Ooh. Yeah. Enjoy the vocab section of the SAT. ACT break. It's <laughs> <laughs> a rent reference. He's talking about AZT. That's what that reference is. <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> We're ready to get this episode started. Oh, damn. Should we, we haven't even started it yet, have we? Okay, let's go. No, you've just been talking about Boss Baby, girl. <laughs> oh, yeah, I brought that up independently on my own. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Boss Baby and Eric Trump sucking dicks. <laughs> we, <laughs> we will be joined by an author I am in awe of today, mm. Britt Bennett, author of The Mothers and her latest number one New York Times bestselling novel, the Vanishing Half. Which is already, the bidding war for this book was wild and serious and will also be adapted just like her last book, The Mothers. Exactly. Yeah. Congrats, HBO, on securing the bag. <laughs> and also Brit. <laughs> A number I won't disclose here, but go look it up. It's wild. Google it. <laughs> and then we're also going to talk about the, the Rock finally dipping his toes into politics. Well, not, not finally. We'll get mm. into that. Uh, a bit, but he did announce that he is voting for Biden and Harris. So, of course, we're going to talk about what The Rock is cooking. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
and I think it might be shishito peppers. <laughs> or 17 <laughs> chicken breasts. Yeah. <laughs> by himself. <laughs> yeah, he eats like Templeton from Charlotte's Web. Like he tips over a table and it falls into his mouth. Yeah. Uh, but before that, we're going to get into the culture we've been digging into in the past week. So we will be right back. On Saturday, we'll be one month out from Election Day. Holy shit. It's happening, y'all. If you haven't yet, now's the time to get involved. Make some calls. Get voters registered before their deadlines. You know the drill. Our Adopt-A-State program is running a big weekend of action, and you can find more volunteer opportunities at votesafeamerica.com. Also, of course, do not forget to donate to the Louisville Community Bail Fund. It is at actionnetwork.org slash fundraising slash Louisville dash community dash bail dash fund. The proceeds to that will really help people who are protesting Breonna Taylor's case right now. Go ahead and donate if you can. And we're back. Y'all, it's been a week again. I know. It's like every week. It's been a week. And we don't get the option not to consume culture. It's part of the job. So I can't like shut myself Mm -hmm. off or just, you know, look at the wall like I'm in that short story, The Yellow Wallpaper, (laughs) which I always bring up. It's okay. So it might be the only short story I've ever read. (laughs) But, but, you know, in in this week of turmoil, uh, as usual, this could be any week that we plopped into, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, but this certainly feels like the most utterly hopeless one, in my opinion. I don't know. Are we on an uphill climb, guys, or a downhill roll? <laughs> um, it's a continuous free fall, but if eventually you sort of hit like certain trap doors where you bounce a second before you fall yeah. even further. <laughs> Each week feels like you're walking through a large mansion, and you know you are, oh, look at this book I want to read, and you pull it off the bookshelf, and then it slides you through like <laughs> one of those bookcases that's always in Scooby-Doo. Right. No, it's like Devil in the White City. You fall down a chute or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I haven't thought about that book in forever. I know. I love Chicago being sinister. That's what I took from that book. Mm. I've been to Market Days. Mm-hmm. I can confirm. <laughs> God, remember when every person in the world was reading Devil in the White City? Right. Like I, I, I agree. Mm-hmm. Even now. It was when I worked at Borders oh, yeah. on Michigan Avenue in Chicago. And that was that was one of the books that people are always traipsing in to get. I mean, the, there's there's always one of those books every year. Uh I was I was talking recently about how I think I was mentioning it to my roommate. Uh he had never heard of the book Guns, Germs, and Steel. Ugh. Mm-hmm. Another one, <laughs> and that was that was another one. That's constantly being asked for that book. Well, I don't know. I, I certainly w- felt that way about the Goldfinch when I worked at Barnes and Noble, which is my my version of you two working at Borders. Because Lewis, you worked there too, I, right? I worked at Barnes and Noble. Oh, actually. okay. Well, <laughs> no, I worked at Barnes and Noble too. I worked at both. Girl. Oh shit! Sorry, trader. Sorry, sorry, sorry. trader. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's Listen. illegal. I mean, I want to check out your taxes. That can't happen. <laughs> I was, you know, I've seen a lot of Dynasty. I was um, stolen away from Borders by Barnes & Noble. Ugh. Oh, that's kind of chic. Actually, Borders closed. <laughs> Did you expand? <laughs> if you recall, Borders was one of the first casualties of yeah. the um, bookstore shutdown of the um, economic crisis. Yeah. No, the one thing they were really good at selling was like, 
BBC mysteries from the 90s, which I don't think you can sustain a business <laughs> with. But um, uh, no, when I worked at Barnes & Noble, it was right when Twilight came out. Oh. And so that was truly the only thing you had to refer readers to like they would they would be vaguely describing yeah. twilight every time and you had to pretend like you just guessed it <laughs> no it's that book um it's it's, it's about uh, uh, uh it's, it's about the vampires and the dracula no uh to get it wrong every time would have been a fun challenge. In retrospect, I right. should have done that. No, it's a woman. She's this 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 old fam- the historian. Right. Oh, Queen of the Dams. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but what have y'all been digging into this week? Aida, you start. Um, I am okay. I'm going down a Bobby McFerrin hole, which is something that I recommend really for everyone. Yes, I mean, mm. I this is uh, Bobby McFerrin was definitely one of the first artists that I was shown in a maybe a, a fifth grade or sixth grade choir class, and we studied his instrumentalism and the way he, you know, literally uses his body as an instrument. But little did I know. His family is kind of Marley-esque in the way that they're all immensely talented and they all have fruitful music careers. So you can go down another hole of listening to Maddie McFerrin's music or Taylor McFerrin's music, which I would extremely recommend. They're very different from Bobby's style, but they've all adapted their own voices and you can just see that talent is... It's nice to know talent is genetic <laughs> and that you can, you can find that. So I've been definitely deep, deep, deep in that. And um, from rap fans, Action Bronson has a new album out called Only for Dolphins. And uh, excuse the strange title, but very, very good rap album. So that's where I'm at. Bobby McFerrin is one of those people who had this gigantic Grammy moment where the whole world revolved around him, mm-hmm. like 1988 or so. And there are a couple people like that, like a Christopher Cross or um, Lauren Hill. But truly, it was like the the man was, for a split second, the person everybody was talking about, there was nobody who compared to him, yeah. whatever. And we think of him as a one-hit wonder, but he's, there are one-hit wonders who are virtuosic. Another person I would say like that is Joan Osborne, who people know from the <laughs> What If God Was One Of yeah. Us song. Guys, again, if and I know I brought up this rendition before, if you're having a rough day, you got to listen to her version of What Becomes of the Brokenhearted. It's one of the best covers ever. Truly. Um, but now I'm going to dig into Bobby McFerrin. I truly only ever heard What If God Was One of Us every week watching Joan of Arcadia. <laughs> By the way, who spent one minute deciding that was going to be the theme for that show? Like, <laughs> a little on the nose, you know. <laughs> Guys, I got it. <laughs> God's here. She's in the show. Yeah. It's probably how it was sold to CBS. Right. Oh, my God. A, a packaging situation. Yeah. Yes. Well, actually, the music I'm obsessed with right now is right from that time. Mm. Prince's 1987 album, Sign of the Times, which I guess now would be considered his sort of um, high point artistically. It, it's like the, the funkiest and the most um, socially aware and uh, deepest grooves, et cetera. It's a weird album. But they uh, released a long-ass version of it. And I, it occurred to me recently that I think for the rest of my life, Prince's vault is going to be throwing things at me. Yeah. You know, like it will never end. The mm-hmm. man was like, the way we watch like Charlie Puth on Instagram just casually come up with like some rad melody you've ever heard in two seconds. Prince was that X50, you know, so he just couldn't stop producing. And now that he's, you know, dead and not here to yell at us for wanting to see inside the vault, we're going to see what's inside <laughs> the vault. You know what? The Disney vault is shook. <laughs> right. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Aida, you are you are definitely probably too young to remember this, but um, a phenomenon that existed for Lewis and I was Disney movies. Whenever they were coming out on 
DVD. Or I remember this. The that. animation yeah, where they oh. open the vault. Yeah, I do remember this. If yes, yes, yes. Truly, it was. It was always like Peter Pan coming to DVD <laughs> uh, next month. But you better get it quick before it goes back into the vault. <laughs> right. It's the Soho house of Disney. It's the like exclusivity that you need to like really, really want to go there. I would just to your sign of the times but- though. It, if I was your girlfriend is easily mm. one of the best songs that's ever been written of all time. And I'm just gonna put that out there into the world and I will fight anyone who dissents. And also certainly one of the greatest alter egos of all time. Mm-hmm. Camille singing like that and still yes. slaying on the track. Um watch I was watching the concert of Side of the Times, which was actually like not a hit. And it's also a strange time because Prince was extremely less popular in 1987 than he was during the Purple Rain time. Mm-hmm. Yet he is still exquisite and untouchable and the Mozart of pop and all these things. But what's crazy watching Prince in concert, especially with all these fucking women around him, <laughs> which is still an unmistakable sight that like we rarely see with a, a male frontman. Something is almost unentertaining about watching music that cannot be improved upon. I am lit- you're literally watching exquisite, unbeatable, funky math. Like mm-hmm. he has solved music. <laughs> like the equation is done, the chalk is on the ground, you know? So it's almost stressful how good it is in certain parts. Mm-hmm. But like Housequake, Sign of the Times, Play in the Sunshine, all these yeah. songs are great. What you're saying is we need Russell Crowe um, to play prince oh well that makes perfect sense of course beautiful minds a beautiful mind just creating music like that or gwyneth paltrow <laughs> that's the math i'm talking about proof yeah yes. yeah proof celebrities doing math in movies that should be a fun montage i want to see people looking smart at a at a board and crack oh uh kira knightley in the imitation game things like that mm. Uh, um, Benedict Cumberbatch mm-hmm. and uh, Taraji. Yeah, Taraji, give me a hidden figures. <laughs> give me <Yeah>. that. <laughs> She's fit. Wait, in hidden figures, she does have the oh, I was just walking by this chalkboard moment and well, yeah, I'm pointing at this, I'm pointing at this. One of those funny the things because that's how Matt always, is. always so funny in those movies. It is, it's is so, someone figuring out an equation, and then, then there's always the person who comes back and they're like, wait. Did you do that? <laughs> the goodwill hunting. <laughs> the, the very goodwill hunting. Goodwill hunting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I really, truly have never given a fuck about math. About who? Me neither. What'd you say? Math. Math. <laughs> math. <laughs> oh, sorry. I thought you guys were going to say a person, but you just said a topic of study. Okay, I hear you. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. Truly got a perfect score on the written and verbal of the SAT, and then did so horrible oh. on the math section and that is why I do not have a high SAT <laughs> I was horrible at the science section actually math I did pretty well at what bothers me is when I'm in a trivia league and math is considered a trivia subject no it's not no. math is math no. that bothers me actual calculations need to be made <laughs> I, yeah, I, yeah I struggled a lot in science I struggled a lot with a lot of the memory things like uh, science but math for some reason I was a child prodigy I've lost it all, but at, at that time, at the time, I was very excelled. Not to toot my own horn, but you mm. know, bitches know her angle. I was great at memory things. I think I think I can um, thank Guess Who for that. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, <laughs> and a competitive streak as well <laughs> could also help. The women of Guess Who. I mean, the phrase that turned me gay is very overused, but when you're playing that game and there's those five unsmiling white women looking right at you, I mean, that's you know. By the way, they're Maria, Anita, Susan, uh, Anne, 
and Claire. And Claire had the gayest <laughs> hat. So Maria had the chicest hat. That was what was important about Guess Who. Wait, who had the who had the one with the flower on it? That would be Claire, bitch. <laughs> okay. Lewis, what? For I, what listen, reason? I barely remember the names of white women, Lewis. I'm not going to remember the names of white women from the board game Guess Who. <laughs> They were stars. I can't help that you don't remember stars. Again, I say casting is the gay superpower, and I think guess who gets you on a track towards the casting profession? Lewis's list of 10 favorite white women is just the women from Guess Who. Right. Those five. (laughs) Susan twice. And then they're like celebrity celebrity counterparts. I'm sure you could name a Susan celebrity and Anita celebrity right now. Oh, yes. No, I had a a bit of a viral moment when I realized that Susan from Guess Who looks exactly like Cher in Mamma Mia 2. Put them together. I wish I could mm. say I have the recall, <laughs> but I believe you. How about that? Again, this is my curse. I, I didn't choose it. Yeah. I always feel like Catherine Justin looked like she was on the Guess Who board. Mm-hmm. Mm, we miss Catherine. Yeah. And by the way, you know who else we miss? Whose birthday it is today? Madeline Kahn, queen of offended white women. If you want the offended white woman Yale student, you got to watch the movies of Madeline Kahn. But of course, I brought her up a thousand times in this podcast. You know all about that. Yeah, I think it was literally beginning of quarantine when I watched What's Up Doc mm. for the first time. And you got your life, I assume? Yeah, it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Barbara Streisand was unhinged. Truly unhinged. No, Barbara's fr- Barbara is frightening. She's here She's here to unnerve you with her comedy. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of movies that I've just seen for the first time and oddly ties back to our Guess Who conversation, the Zoe Saldana movie with Ashton Kutcher and Bernie Mac called Guess Who? Right. Oh, my God. <laughs> the one that's all about what's going to happen if I bring my white boyfriend home. <laughs> like, this is the, premise. the Guess Who's coming to dinner remake. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Uh, fun. Embarrassing. Fun and embarrassing. Ugh. <laughs> R.I.P. Bernie. R.I.P. Ashton, too. He hasn't died. He's just career. It's gone. So, <laughs> Talk wow. to somebody who like you were forced to talk about all the time in a not Kardashian-like way, but I, I don't know. Just He constantly came up, and it wasn't required that you were fascinated with him. He was just like a kind of up-and-coming mogul, mm-hmm. and then you know, Twitter was his last big hurrah, I think. Yeah, he was one of the first people on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Constantly, like, he was co- you had to follow Ashton Kutcher. That was the that was the thing. Wasn't his handle like A plus? Yes, or yeah, 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 A plus K. A plus K. Yes. Oh my god. A plus K. I never wait. I never knew it was A plus K. I always said A plus. I just called it A plus. <laughs> you know, it's well, funny. You can't solve his riddles. Yeah. It's it's uh it's 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 fitting then that Chance the Rapper would take over Punked because I kind of consider them both to be like benign tumors on Hollywood. You know what I mean? Like, like they're really nice and kind. She said benign. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Right. I benign. did preface it. So. I mean, we did talk about him recently. Remember he defended Ellen? Oh, oh I don't of course, that. yes. I mean, he had the most bizarre year testifying uh at the trial of a serial killer. Right. Because he was dating the girl who was killed or went on a date with the girl yes. who was killed. Yeah. Did you Wow. Oh, I you know, years ago he was he was going on a date with a girl and went to pick her up and she like didn't come out to the door and I guess he thought that she'd stood him up uh, and didn't want to go on the date and he left. Turns out she was murdered by a serial killer. <laughs> I'm sorry for laughing. Just the circumstance. Imagine. I, I actually can't, honestly can't believe this hasn't been adapted yet. Yeah. I guess I'm thankful it hasn't been adapted yet because I don't need to see a gritty A plus K approaching a doorway. <laughs> the real gone girl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 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 
uh, I'm sure there is some plucky podcast um, where a white woman is cheerfully talking about the murder. Yeah, I'm sure. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what true crime podcasts are. are and relating <laughs> it to her everyday life. Yes. <laughs> well, what's really exciting is that Ashton Kutcher was was driving to the house, and, and he had no idea the killer was there. That's so exciting, guys. When we're back... <laughs> We'll talk about <laughs> the yogurt shop that's right across the street from the house. <laughs> I'll run the ads just like that. If you like, if you like celebrities' girlfriends being murdered by serial killers, you should head over to parachute.com. <laughs> Do you often run in on your date, but she's dead? <laughs> okay. Oh my God. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <sighs> Ira, uh, what they are you hate, they go, for they culture? Go, <laughs> they go hate us this week. I know. <laughs> I mean, I love those uh, girls. Are we talking about uh, Karen Kilgariff <laughs> and Georgia? They're hilarious. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of dead things, uh, <laughs> this week I have been obsessed with this children's television Here show. Here we go. <laughs> Julie and the Phantoms. Oh. What is it? Julie and the Phantoms is the new series by... Kenny Ortega, uh, <laughs> mm. who did the high school musical films, and it is about this girl, Julie, whose mom died, and so she hasn't played music uh, since her mom died. And her garage is where this band from the 90s, Sunset Curve, used to play. Oh, wow. And they died before they played the Orpheum by eating, like, bad hot dogs. And so she's the only person who can see these ghosts. And then other people can see them when they play music. And so they help her find her way back to music again. And they form a band called Julie and the Phantoms. And she tells everyone that it's a hologram band. And then Cheyenne Jackson is an evil ghost who's trying to steal their souls. Oh, my God. That is so great. I'm so glad this show is happening. <laughs> Truly, the show has nothing but, like, bops. Like, high school musical level bops. It's, yeah. it's really cute. And so it's it original songs. Me. It's not like yes, songs from the songs. 90s repurposed or anything like that. Okay. No, original songs. I mean, I have to wow. run Kenny Ortega the credit because he did – he is, like, notorious for – these exact types of things that are oftentimes amazing and even though they sound daunting, haunting, truly, are actually really good. So yeah. Kenny Ortega, that's a fascinating Wikipedia wormhole to go down because he's this, you know, storied choreographer. He did like dirty dancing, etc. He's mm-hmm. just a, a legend of the business. He also directed a music video for an Olivia Newton John song called The Rumor, which is written by Elton John. It is one of the after Olivia's period where she had songs like Physical and was like the biggest recording star on the planet, she flopped so hard with this song. <laughs> it like career killer, but it is an awesome song. I always am yeah. so mad about that. So the rumor, look that up by Olivia Newton John. Uh he also directed Cher's Heart of Stone tour, Michael Jackson's Dangerous World Tour. That's when it started so, to get really fucking crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. <laughs> oh wow. It's it's weird it's weird to remember him as doing like shit like that from the past because I mean obviously I first heard of Kenny Ortega with high school musical. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's where I clocked in. Cheetah Girls, Hannah Montana, all of those, maybe even Camp Rock, give me one any Disney Channel original. The movie, Descendants. A decom. The Descendants. Yes. Oh, and uh, Crazy Ex Girlfriend too. 
I think yeah. he recently worked on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Speaking of Gilmore Girls earlier, Lewis, he directed a bunch of Gilmore Girls episodes and Alan McBeal episodes. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, one other thing about uh, Julia the Phantoms, though, is apparently Jeremy Shada, one of the Phantoms uh, in the of series, course, of course. has been scamming people on Instagram. Meaning what? <laughs> so, um... Apparently, uh, some fan of the series made fan art and posted it on Instagram. I got this info from Miles McNutt on um, Twitter. But basically, a fan posted uh, fan art of the Phantoms. And then Jeremy and his wife like were like, oh, this is so cute. Would love this on a t-shirt. Then like a week later, they debuted their own drawing that they said was inspired by that fan art. And then they start selling that art on shirts on Etsy. So they basically ripped off a fan's art to start selling their own Etsy shirts. <laughs> and then when they were called out, started putting that person's handle in their Instagram post. And then the wife, to show that there was no drama, uh, was sharing the screenshots of DMing the fan being like, oh, I would love to do um, my own drawing inspired by yours. But, you know, that's just this weird thing of showing, like, what fan who's young is going to, like, say no to a celebrity's wife. Yeah. 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 This, You're being ripped off. Yeah. Right? This is a practice yeah. called Urban Outfitters, mm-hmm. by the way. It's been done before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I truly forgot the era when Urban Outfitters was truly stealing art from everyone. Fully. Or even like a uh, Dolls Kill or a Ragged Priest, like these kind of newer brands that are just adopting that same model. And this whole thing with the, showing the screenshots of the fan reminds me of the Kanye Kim Taylor triangulation that happened during Life of Pablo, where it's like, okay, how about how about you let the fan actually speak about what happened? But no, no, just the proof that we kind of did a little bit of the work. Anyway, uh, that's our week, y'all. Oh, yeah. I'm also watching The Importance of Being Earnest, the 1952 version. Oh, that's cute. Man, Aida, I don't want to tell you what to do. If you ever <laughs> get the opportunity to be in a version of uh, The Importance of Being Earnest as one of the, the ladies in it, these are like little snapdragons who kind of seem prim at first and then roast you. Everybody in Importance of Being Earnest is like a bitch, mm-hmm. but uh, the funniness, immortal. I really recommend everybody reading it. It's so, so funny. And the movie is so, so funny. In this house, we stand Oscar Wilde. Duh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sodomite. <laughs> and that's our show. <laughs> All right, well, we're back. <laughs> we'll be joined by Britt Bennett. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand... That was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. 
I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. <laughs> Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. <laughs> Our guest today is a best-selling author. Her second novel, The Vanishing Half, debuted at the top of the New York Times bestseller list this June. And HBO just got the rights to that in a brutal bidding war. <laughs> yes, I'm gassing you up because you deserve it. <laughs> the, van- the, van- the Vanishing Half is truly that book. And maybe my fave of the year. We will get into that. Please welcome... Back to keep it, Brent Bennett. Uh, last time you were here, you were only interviewed by Kara, and now, now we've got you. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me back. It's it's good to be on here with everybody. Back to back books that are just fucking amazing because I love the mothers too. Thank you. I'm like, yes, just uh, so in awe of the writing. I I truly sat down and read The Vanishing Half in one sitting i was sitting in my chair in the living room and i think my roommate like keeps coming out and i've like changed from the changed from the chair to the couch to the other to the sectional like just like boom like like a montage of someone like going through something with ben winkle beard appearing read it in under six hours wow that's amazing. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm not that type of reader myself, so I'm in awe of that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly what I said to him earlier. <laughs> uh, for, for people who don't know, you know, The Vanishing Half is about a small town in Louisiana um, called Mallard, you know, and it is uh, such an interesting um, town. Uh, it is a town where um, light-skinned black people sort of, like, intermarry to create only other light-skinned black people, like, taking Jack and Jill to the next level. <laughs> um, and these these two sisters, um, Desiree and Stella, who leave town. They run away. Uh, and then we find out what happens when one and then the other returns to town and their lives intersect through their daughters. And um, how did you come up with this story? What was in your mind that helped you sort of like craft this? Because I know you said that the mothers, you know, you were working on for years. How did this story come to you quicker or was it always like a seed in your brain um, as something you wanted to work on after? Yeah, well, it took me a shorter amount of time to write it, thank God. Um, (laughs) It took me probably about four or five years compared to the mothers, which was seven, eight, nine so I was, I was grateful for that, at least. Um, but really, the, the genesis of the book, it started with a conversation with my mom, who 
is from rural Louisiana and told me very offhandedly one day on the phone about this town she remembered hearing about where only light-skinned Black people were sort of intermarrying to, to kind of genetically engineer a lighter-skinned population. And it struck me as extremely strange, um, which then made me start thinking of it, oh, this is a setting for a novel. Oh, God, mm-hmm. that's such... that's. First of all, I can't believe an idea could just be handed to you. Like I know. Like, <laughs> what, is, is your mom, like, pitching for the Atlantic? What's going on? <laughs> But secondly, okay, I just have a question about novelists in general. My entire life, Aida and I were talking about this earlier, is ADD oriented around short blips of posting on social media, mm-hmm. and that is all I believe I am capable of. <laughs> how, how do you like maintain a brain that can just focus on a project of writing and not expose it to anybody or get constant feedback publicly about it? Like, is it daunting? <laughs> Um, I think in a way it can be daunting, but in a way I think it's actually very liberating for the reason that you're just describing that I think there is the constant pressure to constantly, you know, express yourself and also immediately receive feedback. And as you said, the novel is the opposite of that. The novel is working on something for seven or eight years that nobody ever sees (laughs) but you. And there's something that can make you feel, you know, a little bit like you're losing your mind. But I also think there's something that's really nice of protecting some part of yourself from the outside world that we don't really have many aspects of our lives where we have that type of protection anymore. Yeah, at all. And I would, my favorite thing about reading your book was that I have spent most of 2020, well, most of every year being a black person in America, thinking about interracial issues and not like letting myself focus on intraracial issues as much. And I don't think that that gets to be explored to the extent that I think it should be. So to see this whole story investigating colorism and the institutional way the people in Mallard, you know, apply colorism to every aspect of their life, what made you want to investigate colorism and also to talk about it between twins like I thought I mean, it was like it seems like such a natural way of talking about it but also so like the right decision <laughs> the right decision for these characters yeah <laughs> yeah I mean I think to the first part of your question I think that was uh something that really mattered to me was I think you know often conversations about race particularly in America are boiled down to black versus white um in this way that is largely uninteresting to me to be honest (laughs) um so i wanted to write this book that was centered around a black community and all of the diversity within black communities and all of the conflicts and the tensions and the nuances uh, within the ways in which we are interacting with each other instead of the major conflict in the book being some white person or uh, whiteness sort of infringing itself upon the book in that way so i think that was that was one thing that i was thinking about and I think as far as twins, the twins kind of arrived to me second after the town that my mother sort of handed to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I, you know, I think twins are uh, one of our sort of most useful metaphors for identity and the ways in which we think about identity. Um, and I think also twins fit kind of fit into some of the genres I think I was playing with in the book, of particularly melodrama and, and the idea of there being, you know, evil twins or secret revelations of twins. I think twins are sort of that type of character that felt right for this type of book. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think, sorry, speaking of twins really quick, I want to ask this because I can't stop thinking about it. Since HBO is going to make this into an adaptation, <laughs> I just want some pitches. <laughs> are, you, are, are you thinking it's going to be like a Nicolas Cage adaptation or like a L- Lindsay Lohan in The Parent Trap where one person <laughs> plays both of the two characters? And if you could pick right now, my, my, my vote is Zendaya. <laughs> oh. Who do you think mm, should play? You're onto something. I know this she might be she might be too young and too like yeah yeah I don't know not maybe not hardy looking enough for what these characters are but who do, who would you love to play both of the two girls the two women um as far as as far as how the twins I honestly have no idea because they also 
brought up a third option that I had not considered, which was two similar looking looking actors and CGI. Oh. Um, oh. So apparently that is that is like new and twin technology. So I didn't <laughs> know that that was even possible. So I have no idea. Um, and you know, I don't I don't know. I think casting this is going to be. Ugh, I mean, I won't say a nightmare, but I think it's going to have to be very precise. Like, I imagine whoever is, is th- making those choices, it will have to be so specific because it actually matters deeply what people look like in service of the particulars of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I mean, you'd have to have twins as children, twins as adults. I don't even I don't even know. But I've had I've, it's been fun to receive lots of pitches from readers. I did a Zoom book club where somebody shared their screen and it was just their casting uh, suggestions. That's so I've enjoyed that. That's wonderful. <laughs> no, when you write a book now, I mean, like, because you're going to be a producer on this too, do you think cinematically as you're writing, like, are you thinking, like, okay, this scene will be mapped out this way? And do you put that in the book, or is that an entire other brain you only activate after the fact? Um, I think a little bit. I, I do try to be aware of, of image and, and what you're looking at and what people are doing with their bodies. But I think also the thing that's daunting to me about TV is just that, you know, when you're in a book, you can move through time so rapidly. You know, you can move through time and somebody is sitting in a room and they're remembering something that happened 20 years ago. And now you're 20 years in the past and it's very seamless. Um, and I think the the things that are available on TV are, you know, techniques I haven't even probably thought about as a, as a person who writes fiction. So I'm really excited to see where that's going to come in. But I'm also excited that we have really great writers that we're bringing in who are going to be in charge of of translating this book into a different medium. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of um, the genres that you were working in, uh, you brought up melodrama, uh, and you know, as everyone who listens to this show knows, that I am a soap fan, um, <laughs> and I loved how um, you one introduce a soap opera into the show later, uh, Pacific <laughs> Cove, uh, and then I also just loved, you know, that like this story borrows on tradition of like stories like imitation of life you know which is like these this searing you know like cirque melodrama uh and my question is um were like soaps and these stories things that like um you watched growing up like um with your mom like grandmother you know like i feel like we always had the young and the restless on in the house um and like what about um writing melodrama interests you but also doesn't interest you because what I really like about it is that um, it it dips his toes into it, uh, but you have such an exciting control of the story that it never veers over into, you know, like Kennedy being beat, you know, because someone finds out she's an octopus. (laughs) (laughs) A quadrant, sorry. <laughs> As you remember the scene in Imitation of Life, <laughs> I, remember, I remember very well. I remember that scene very well. Um, yeah, I mean that that was certainly uh, something that was on the forefront of my mind. That's one of our most kind of canonical texts about racial passing. And that was a a film that my mother, I remember, made me watch as a child. And for her, like, the lesson of the movie was just like, this is why you don't disrespect your mother. Like, look how Mm -hmm. how sad this woman is. Because, you know, (laughs) sort of this prodigal daughter, like, we we weren't even really talking about in the terms of race. That was just kind of, it was a mother-daughter story. And that was how, how, that was kind of my entry point into that. But I remember so vividly that scene of, of, you know, this woman being brutally beaten and left in the alley. And when she gets back and her, her mother is like, well, that's what happens when you lie. And, and the film just kind of moves on. <laughs> so, so there were some really harrowing memories that I that had attached to that film. 
Um, but I think, you know, and, and also like, you know, uh, I remember seeing, you know, lots of um, sort of soap operas on kind of in the background growing up, not watching them super seriously, but but being kind of familiar with with some of the, the trapping of that genre. And I think for me, I love writing that leans into what it is. <laughs> um, I think that a lot of times melodrama is kind of this dirty word. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, I think one of the things that I loved when I was working on this book is I was reading something, some like paper about imitation of life. And they were talking about the definition of melodrama is like too late, but just in time. And mm. you know, that that's, that's the end of that movie, which is that she's too late because her mother's already died, but she's just in time for this huge funeral. Um, and so much of tension, <laughs> of, of, like so much of the tension in a melodrama comes from that relationship. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I loved kind of, um, you know, playing with a bit. I love, I love when they're like, you know, different mediums within whatever thing that you're doing. So shows within shows, I always mm. love that. Mm. Um, so having this kind of show within the book um, and and getting to play into that, and particularly through this character, Kennedy, who, you know, is, I, I mean, I don't even know how to really describe her race, to be honest. She's, I, someone described her to me once as, is functionally white, but with black heritage. Um, so mm-hmm. this character whose mother has been passing for white her entire life and has always believed herself to be white, and then her entering this world uh, of soap of the soap opera, which it, in a lot of ways is is sort of more over the top than her real life. In a lot of ways, maybe not. Um, so I had fun playing playing with those different modes when I was thinking about the book. Yeah, I've always loved melodrama. You know, since um, grad school. You know, like I I felt like that's when I learned that it wasn't like a gross, dirty mm-hmm. word. You know, right. and like studying like those classic films and the art form. You know, it's really just a genre about people who want something in life and they're constantly trying to get it and the world is like no <laughs> right and, and i think and i think and they also, look tear streaked in an amazing way <laughs> <laughs> and, and i think also just passing literature as a whole it, it lends itself well to melodrama because it's about secrets that are mm. withheld and revealed and secret family connections and a lot of those things there is something you know, so deeply American about passing literature and, and I guess in that way also melodrama. That's perfect. That's mm-hmm. exactly what I was going to ask you because when I was reading the book, of course, I couldn't help. Once we get to Stella's storyline, of course, she's the instance of the twin who was opted for the white passing life and we get to meet her family. Um, I was reminded of Passing by Nella Larson, you know, which is actually getting adapted into Love a film part. as yeah. well. Yeah. So I can't wait to see the like contemporary constructive conversation that we'll have once your project is out and passing is out. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and so, uh, but what was really interesting to me is that when people talk about passing, it's always like the Homer Plessy of it all. Like you get to be a savior <laughs> and you get to be like this person who brings great, great um, advancement for black people, but that's not always the case. And that's what I saw in Stella's storyline that I really appreciated. But I wanted to know specifically when you were writing Stella and writing her family, what parts of passing were you interested in shining a light on? Yeah, well, I mean, I I can tell you one part that I was not interested at all was sort of the moral judgment of it. And I think that that's, again, historically, that's that kind of comes with a lot of the territory of passing literature where there's, there's you know, character experiences some great tragedy at the end, um, some type of punishment. And I, I didn't care about that, really, or, or thinking about is she right or is she wrong? That that was an, an interesting question to me. I think for me, it was really the question of how these choices change her in her life and, and what she also gains by passing and what she loses. Um, I think that to me, it was thinking about 
that and the ways in which this affects her and also the life of her daughter who who grows up believing her world to be very different than the world of her uh, that actually her mother lived. Um, all of those things, I think, were much more interesting to me than any type of uh, moralizing about whether passing is good or bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that in all of your writing, by the way, because the mother's was about abortion, you know, and it's at, at no point does it sort of, you know, end up with a this is pro-choice or this is pro-life, you know, like um, and I've just loved how you've present, been able to present black characters living their lives and there's no lesson at the end. Yeah. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. <laughs> As you write a novel, how much media are you consuming? Like, are you somebody who's then rereading things you've loved or rewatching movies you're obsessed with, or does everything go away during that time? Uh, I do both. I know some people who can't, like, they don't want to read anything while they're writing something, or they don't want to read anything similar to what they're writing. Um, I-, I love reading things that are in the wheelhouse of what I'm working on. I want to see what, how other people did this thing. Um, and sometimes I realize, okay, I want to do something really different than what they did, um, or even just ways in which you're being inspired by, you know, whatever you're working on. So I find it really generative actually to, to look at what other people have done that are, that are kind of in the genre of what I'm doing or in the area that I'm writing about. Mm -hmm. Um, how much does music play into your writing? Cause what was interesting to me is when I was reading, um, First, there's these amazing queer characters in the novel, too. There's scenes in West Hollywood, and you mention, like, you know, someone listening to a new Thelma Houston song. And then, truly, I went to Spotify and put (laughs) on Thelma Houston's Any Way You Like It album and just had it, like, on repeat while I read the rest of it. And and for me, right, you know, but just, like, Thinking about that era of music, and you're wearing a Supreme shirt, you know, too, you know, like thinking of that era of music, like the longing and that sort of fits, you know, with like melodrama, especially with black characters. And I just want to know, like, what kind of music were you listening to while you were crafting this story? Um, Is music something that helps that? helps inspire you in your writing. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I I'm, The next project I'm working on is explicitly about music. So oh. that mm. has been like many, many Spotify playlists. Yes. And many, <laughs> um, so that has been something I've been very intentional about. Um, but with The Vanishing Half, I think, yeah, I was listening to, I just remember listening to a lot of Frank Ocean um, mm. and a lot, of, a lot of Lana Del Rey. Um, Wistful, just I, longing for Lord. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of, yeah, for, for Lauren. Wouldn't be shocked if she was passing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for Lauren is like the perfect word. Just watery last names. Ocean yeah. and Delray. <laughs> there you go. There you go. There were a lot of water images in the, in the book that fit. So, so, yeah, I do. I like to, I do love to listen to music when I'm writing. And I think, yeah, working on something that's explicitly about music, it's caused me, I think, to listen to music in a different way. But, but for the vanishing half, a lot of it was like, yeah, I, I can't, I, I struggle to write and just complete silence. I need something in the background. Mm-hmm. Your books inspire such immediate praise. And I have to yeah. ask, who has reached out that has blown your mind? Because I feel like there's something <laughs> specific names, about writing a book where, 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 where people like message you and they're like, this changed my life. Like, in a way, authors, I think, bear so much responsibility for like the emotional lives of their fans uh-huh. in a way that like almost no other celebrity type does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I've heard I've heard from I mean, I've heard from a lot of readers about this book. I've heard a lot of people's complicated sort of racial stuff mm. um, that, 
you know, I think with my first book, The Mothers, which like, as Iris says around abortion, I heard a lot of people's like abortion confessions with that book. And that was kind of intense in a really different way. But with this, there's a lot of complicated family histories that people are just bringing into my DMs on Instagram um, that, that, I, that I've received. Uh, so it's been a little just intense. Just say Tony Braxton. <laughs> she messaged you. She wants to talk. Her and Tamar, they, they were here sobbing, reading it. <laughs> One other thing I really enjoy about your writing too, and you know, and you you talked about this um, last time you were on Keep It with Kara, yeah, the idea of not seeing so many representations of Black people on the West Coast. You know, we get a lot of Southern writing, um, you know, some like Chicago stuff, East Coast, but you know, your first one was set, you know, in like Oceanside, uh, and like this one, you know, like. The L.A., the West Hollywood stuff, you know, it is just it was it was so interesting um, reading this, you know, because it it felt fresh and new, you know. And so, like, are there other um, California writings um, that have maybe inspired you as you grew up in California? And what's been your journey to realizing that you are like a California writer? Because (laughs) I'm at the point where I want I want the nonfiction now because I want (laughs) I want I I want you coming for Joan Didion's spot. Oh, that's funny. Uh, you know, yeah, I think this book sneakily became a California novel. I, I really thought um, in a lot of ways I was writing towards my mother's life growing up in Louisiana and the book starts there. And then eventually it makes its way to my father who grew up in, in L.A. Um, and was kind of in college around the time that these characters are just running around uh, L.A. Um, so, yeah, it kind of snuck up on me. I think a lot of that is just being interested in, in that migration, which is, I think we talk about less culturally. We talk a lot about you know, so the great migration of people moving from the South to these Northern industrial cities, but we talk mm-hmm. less about that, that kind of second great migration of people moving to California or the West Coast. Um, mm-hmm. In the case of my family, my, my grandma came from Arkansas and, you know, my mom came from Louisiana and they all ended up in, in California. Um, so I love that. And I love just playing with that idea of the American West as a space for reinvention, which I think is one of our really beloved mythologies about California and particularly LA is this as mm-hmm. uh, a city where you can reinvent yourself and also just create yourself in this really different way. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get a, a slouching toward Mallard joke in earlier that I didn't, <laughs> I didn't get a chance to get in. So I'm just catching the, <laughs> I mean, the passing is white out. Yeah, right <laughs> passing as it lays. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, beyond, beyond, and my question isn't as uh, smart as Ira's, beyond, you know, you finding out that you are a California writer, um, what other authors, you know, probably black women is what I'm asking, that have inspired <laughs> you in the past and made you realize like, oh, I can do this and I can achieve levels of success in the same way? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot this year of just kind of growing up during the 90s and this real golden age of black women writers and thinking about that kind of trifecta of, of Toni Morrison, Alice Walker, and Terry McMillan that I just saw, like on Oprah, or I saw, you know, I read, they, they, they were people that created work that was critically acclaimed, but also sold. People were, you know, these were best-selling writers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in addition to that, the idea of that you can, you know, do something like Waiting to Exhale, uh, which is about the lives of these kind of suburban, you know, black women in Phoenix, I think is where it's at. And and not only does that become this huge phenomenon among black women, it becomes a huge mainstream phenomenon. So I think that those were three authors that re- truly showed me that it was possible. I don't think I ever grew up believing that it wasn't possible. 
um, which is not to say that I expected it to happen to me, but I, I knew that it could. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, if I'm like, if I had grown up, you know, 10 years, you know, or 20 years before or something like that, I would never have thought that something like this is possible, that you could be a black woman writing about the lives of black women and, you know, obtain some type of mainstream success. I mean, Babyface did mm-hmm. the music for that. So maybe we should get him for this. <laughs> maybe we can see what Babyface is up to. <laughs> <laughs> when you mentioned waiting to exhale, that zaps me to a what did we do with director Forrest Whitaker? And now I'm like, now that'll oh, occupy yeah. me the rest of the day. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here, Britt. I mean, well, uh, thanks for having me. Two iconic books back to back. People need to read The Vanishing Half. I'm so glad that you are just telling these stories. I mean, thank you. truly, I'm probably going to read it again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, it, uh, it's been a minute since I've, you know, seen a book um, that's not, not like a play, you know, but which is easier to reread, like a book, you know, where I'm just like, I need to read that shit again. Because the story <laughs> was just you. it. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. On Sunday, The Rock notoriously mum when it comes to politics for the first time announced that he was endorsing a candidate ticket. He endorsed Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Oh, phew. Uh, I thought he was going to go Nader this year. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine if he'd come out for Chisholm? (laughs) Guys, I've taken some time, weighed the options, and I think we should vote for Shirley Chisholm for president. Big step forward for black women. Get on board. Yeah. Uh, In a video he posted on Twitter, he interviewed both of the candidates and made his case for the Democratic ticket, focusing on the need for progress through kindness and respect. And in just three hours, the video had been viewed over two million times on Twitter. And on his Instagram, he even linked to votesaveamerica.com. Okay, shouts out. Which, uh, as soon as this video dropped, I sent Tommy Vitor a text and said, listen, bitch, <laughs> if The Rock is about to come on Pod Save America, you also will be dead to me. Like John Favreau. Right. No. Uh, the stakes are high. And he said, um, no, he was completely shocked that um, The Rock linked to Vote Save America. So oh. it, wasn't a, it yeah. wasn't a gambit. It mm-hmm. wasn't a part of a setup. No. It wasn't coordinated at all. So hello, let's celebrate that. Free promo. Branding yeah. Free works. promo. Marketing works. <laughs> <laughs> Here's my question. What is the fascination with The Rock? And by that I mean mm. I enjoy him as an entertainer when I have seen him. Certainly good at what he does. He appears to be a big muscular man who is nice. That's part of it, I think. It's the actual phys- yeah, physical ability to harbor that much mass is insane to me. So that's why I keep going back. But also the, the seamless transition from WWE to acting. I thought that's something that you would maybe respect, Lewis. I'm not defending him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, it's not that I, I don't. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I support the John Cena's of the world and whatever. We should have given China an action franchise. That's the, <laughs> that's the extent of my wrestling knowledge right there. Um, it's just, I feel like people have like an Oprah-like adoration of him. Whereas like Oprah talked to us every day for years and years and years. And The Rock is merely a big friendly person who is in movies. Mm-hmm. Is part of it like... Kids love him in the way that when I'm eight years old, Jim Carrey is the king of the world to me, and it's an extension of that. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I would say it's a bit of an oversimplification of that. You know, you, the way you compared him to Oprah, you, one, have to think about how many millions of Americans watched wrestling, especially yes. during the Attitude Era of big personalities. You know, it was The Rock. It was Stone Cold Steve Austin. It was China. You know, it was Triple H, Triple H yeah. becoming the Erica Kane of wrestling, as I called him the other week, um, marrying into the McMahon family, giving you soap opera, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. like, the way that you can imagine Susan Lucci, Deirdre Hall, you know, um, being chased down, like, in malls, you mm-hmm. know? Like, you've seen Soap Dish, too, you know? Like, um, Sally Field, you know, playing Celeste, you know? Like, the fans watching it, you were watching The Rock, like, multiple times a week, and you were getting invested in these storylines, you know? And um, for him to be an amazing wrestler, to also have an incredible sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Considerably attractive, too. Yeah, hot. Yeah, let's just hot. say this And don't yeah. forget, ethnically ambiguous. True. Movies, okay? Because <laughs> he is black and Samoan. The real money maker. He's black and Samoan, but, you know, as the GQ um, profile with Katie Weaver said in 2017, you know, um, a lot of people look at him and they're like, what, are you Greek or something? <laughs> you know, so like white people could um, look at him and like sort of like <laughs> pretend he was white like them too. You know, like black people could be like, that's me, you know. So like Samoan people knew he was them, you know. So it was like it was easy enough to have The Rock become an avatar for so many things that you felt much in the way that Oprah became an avatar for how you felt, you know, because like Oprah, obviously the hard hitting interviews, um, you know, like a black woman, black woman working herself up from Chicago, uh, public television to getting where she is now, you know, like still so much of the Oprah fandom and cult of Oprah just comes from, you know, like feeling like she is your friend, you know, watching mm-hmm. her every day. And I think that people love The Rock. Yes. I, I And also on the other hand, he capitalized on the very impressionable markets. Like I can't tell you right now to this moment if Dwayne The Rock has children at all, but he has assumed. He does. Okay. There you go. <laughs> he assumes this father figure. I mean, he was in Tooth Fairy. He was in that movie with Madison Pettis, The Game Plan. Like he is a voice in Moana. I think that children really do love him and, and even now have have that like that fatherly role with him and then also every action movie mm-hmm. ever so <laughs> there's like the fast and furious fans and he definitely seems like ideal dad yeah 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 also can we just talk about that movie the game plan for a second <laughs> that movie was written by and this is so weird the first mole on the tv series the mole Catherine price wrote that anyway so reality stars who become screenwriters that talk about a transition that speaks to me. There, yeah, there you go. Uh, <laughs> if I could say something else about The Rock too, it is been so interesting watching this um, transition. You know, because like the cult of personality around him is is almost similar to the one that was cultivated around Donald Trump. You know, like a lot of people were wondering, would he run for president? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and it was 
right after Trump was elected, you know, so it was like we could end up with another celebrity as president, you know, and and I would say that in a lot of ways he is so much smarter than Trump. Actually, that that's dumb. Uh, he is incredibly smarter than Trump. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, He's and, less diabolical uh, than mm-hmm. Trump, but smarter mm-hmm. than Trump. Yes. yes, you know, and he has actually played such a politically neutral persona um, that it is understandable why so many people like him, you know? Because, like, r- right now, if he were to announce that he was running for office, we'd have to learn what he thinks about policy, etc. You know, like, right now, all we know is that, like, he loves the military, you know, and now that he loves Biden and Harris, you yeah. know? And it's like, I don't want to understate how um, fantastic it is that he did come out to support Biden and Harris, but I also want to let people know that it, it's not as groundbreaking as, like, if he had done it for Hillary, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, this this is something where it's like, now it is literally, like, you're, you're, you're facing evil. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you gotta make a choice, you know? Uh, yeah, but he chose I think, not an electrical fire, right. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I just think about how he has been able to, you know, maneuver his way through all this for years, you know? Like, you brought up, like, kids loving him. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, when I was a teenager, like, you know, like, everyone was talking about, do you smell what the rock is cooking, you know? But, like, adults were watching this, you know? Like, it was children and adults were asking if you smell what the rock was cooking at graduations, at weddings, at funerals. Um, was that ubiquitous? Are you when, being serious? <laughs> oh, yeah, it was everywhere. It was everywhere, yeah. Wow. It was every fucking where. I was, was very aware slogan. of him, and I was not a wrestling mm. fan, yes. Yeah. Though I want, I want to push back on you saying that he maneuvered through being politically neutral. I mean, face it, he's not somebody that people expect. Like, he's a man a famous man in a way where people don't expect him to have to be political or if he is political I think he's probably going to get less flack for yeah. it, you know no I'm saying he did maneuver his because first of all the way that he got his catchphrase you smell what the rock is cooking is weirdly in a um in a Wrestlemania uh where he is interviewed by Jennifer Flowers oh my god and there are jokes about like well would you ever want to be leader like what would you do if you like were in the White House, you know? And it was just ways for him to make jokes about how, like, hung juries and, you know, like, um, <laughs> make, make like, or, like oral sex yeah. jokes because it's post-Lewinsky. Uh, and also Jennifer Flowers, you know, had the affair with Clinton, too. So it was, like, ways to make jokes about it. And this is definitely when he was in his era of, you know, like, speaking in third person. You're like, that was what he always used to do, too. He was always, if you smell what The Rock is cooking, or, like, The Rock is doing this, etc. Uh, and during that interview is when he says, um, if you smell what I'm cooking, sort of like off hands and that created the catchphrase so it's just so very interesting to me that Jennifer Flowers is connected (laughs) with that creation of the catchphrase and then years later if you recall The Rock spoke at the 2000 Republican National Convention and he comes out and he's doing The Rock shtick um, and everyone is like cheering insanely which is always so funny when Republicans are like oh they're trucking out all these celebrities I'm like you were all fucking salivating and coming in your pants over The Rock doing The Rock shtick on stage at the Republican National Convention but what's interesting about when he did that is there's an interview before on C-SPAN and then even when he's up there speaking, he never says 
to vote Republican. Mm. He urges people to go out and register to vote. And he urges his young fans who watch him wrestling every week to go out and vote. And there's even an interview where he says, you know, I'm not here to, you know, say whether people should support the Republican candidate or the Democratic candidate. I just think that people should go and register to vote and get their voice heard. So I think that this is a man who has shrewdly Mm -hmm. towed the line of not upsetting any of his fans on either side because I know that he knows that, like, one, like, a lot of black people and shit, like, watch um, wrestling, mm-hmm. you know, and that is the heart of the Democratic base. Um, but a lot of racist-ass people watch it, too. Uh, and also Vince McMahon running the WWE empire. So, you know, I think since his inception, really, um, he has been able to do this. Is it okay if I call that both shrewd and unimpressive? Like, if you and go to the bullshit, Republican, yeah. yeah, if you go to the Republican yes. National Convention, I don't give a fuck. Yes. Yeah. I mean, like, of course. I, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't find it impressive. I'm just saying that maybe the reason people love him so much is he is one of the people who has been able to do that without being called out as, you know, like being like a racist or something, you know? Yeah. Like it, it hasn't affected him. And, and it would be weird, I think, for someone to like go on a rant about how like the rock is what's wrong with this country, you know? Mm-hmm. He I, I, he did exactly what The Rock should have done in the situation, is, is I think is what you're saying. He did. And, but also it's like I personally am not interested in him supporting Joe Biden and Kamala without like a clear condemnation of Trump because mm-hmm. it, it, this he pretty much goes, yes, I'm a centrist. I'm in the middle. I've been independent my whole life. But then makes it sound like he voted for Trump in the last election. Almost like mm-hmm. without ever saying it is what I can kind of deduce from the video when he's talking about it. It just felt like a clever way to get around the fact that he he feels like, uh-oh, I messed up before and mm-hmm. now here I'm going for Biden. Absolutely. You know, I love The Rock, but I would say that this is something to pay attention to, you know, because it is definitely becoming a blueprint for how you can support sort of like the side that's right and still sort of dip your toes in the other side. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's very Lincoln project, you know, being like, we got to get Trump out of office, you know, but whereas you notice the Lincoln project ain't been saying shit about this, um, Supreme court nominee because they are Republicans. Yeah. You know, and, and it's, it, it's like, it's, it's the same shit of like them being, them trying to make jokes about Trump's tax returns on Twitter. And it's like, I'm sorry, everyone involved with the Lincoln Project helped create the Bush era tax cuts. <laughs> if he really gets people to go out there and vote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, like I, I am excited by it. But I, I agree with Aida. It's just without the condemnation, it doesn't feel like he's, he's the quote-unquote going big, as he said. Mm-hmm. It seems like a lot of talk and a lot of chest puffing. Mm-hmm. It is. It's very, it's very Magneto, you know? <laughs> the Rock had his heel turn in the 2000s, um, and it's very Magneto. You're teaming up with him, you know, to take on the Brood or Apocalypse or whoever. Um, but, you know, next issue, he could be your enemy again. <laughs> <laughs> All right, when we're back... Keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It is Keep It. Lewis, you're raring to go. Your nostrils are flaring. <laughs> I'm, I'm at the starting line. My hands are right there. I'm in lane five. 
Um, my nostrils are flaring. Uh, my keep it this week is to Mark Burnett, who we know as the mastermind behind Survivor, a show we love. Uh, he also is the mastermind behind a show called The Apprentice. And if you read part two of the New York Times eye-opening tax article on Donald Trump, you will find that when The Apprentice started, it turns out that year Trump declared $90 million in losses. And he basically, through The Apprentice, ended up garnering about $420 million related to merchandising and you know selling himself on everything from laundry detergent to whatever the fuck he sells himself on. You know who <laughs> Donald Trump is. And in this article, there's a quote from Mark Burnett, who is married to Roma Downey, and that disturbs me also. We can talk about that another time. Saying, what makes the world a safe place right now? I think it's American dollars, which come from taxes, which come because of Donald Trump. This man was actively involved in just rebranding him as like a benevolent money god when in fact he's, you know, grifting, grifting, grifting the entire time. I'm also sick of the word grifting, which comes up on Twitter a lot. I'm sorry to invoke it again now. But The Apprentice in general, as entertaining as it ever was, man, if we could go back and get rid of that, our lives would be so much better right now. Ultimately, first of all, he $420 million, that's way too much money for a show where a man sits behind a desk and tells Lil John to believe in himself. No. <laughs> Bullshit. And furthermore, the amount of women I have loved, celebrities who've gone on that show and had to like not grovel at his feet, but basically make him seem like a god in order for the drama of the show to work. So painful. I'm talking Marley Matlin, Cindy Lauper, Nadia Comaneci, my girl Dionne Warwick sitting there having to deal with his fucking bullshit and getting to feel charitable, which was the whole point of that show, that he got to brand himself as a charitable person. We get to blame Mark Burnett for this entire nonsense, and it's just so painful, the obvious things that have allowed this man to rehabilitate himself year after year. Mm-hmm. To keep it 100, though, The Apprentice was that show. Oh, here we go. Maybe for a season. It was great. Yeah. No, no. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to let you get away with that, Lewis. The, the Apprentice was a great fucking television show. I mean, I want to say he should, just be an, he should be a television actor. <laughs> I'm, I'm fine with that. But you're right. Yeah. Like By acting the part of somebody who makes a lot of money, he got to make a lot of money. It's just Well, of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that that is always the um, painful part of it, you know? I mean, I think I did a... Uh, I rewatched most of The Apprentice for a um, piece in MTV News, like after he was elected, and it was very painful um, to, you know, revisit that knowing what we knew about him now. Um, now, n- not that painful because I've been watching old clips just because uh, Nini mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. is great in them. Um, but it's this idea that. He was this failed businessman, and he was constantly, like, not just hawking products of his own, but, like, because competitions always involved other brands, you know, wanting to sell their shit on NBC, like, they had to come on the show and act like Trump was the ultimate businessman for, you know, like, giving them a platform, you know? So, like, of course people are going to watch that and think that he is an amazing businessman and you know not the broke bitch that he really is and uh yeah it's your your um your boss jimmy pointed that out in the 2016 emmys lewis i remember he called out mark burnett in the audience like if trump wins you're the first person we're throwing over that wall (laughs) (laughs) 
people, yeah, people like, and Mark Burnett is just laughing, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I'm being roasted. It's like, fuck you, Mark Burnett. Yeah, and I mean, like that is what Mark Burnett does. Whether it's like uh, Shark Tank or The Apprentice or The Voice or any of these shows where you take a so you took take someone and make them larger than life and sensationalize them deliberately for the whole sake of the show. But fuck anyone who knowingly or unknowingly is the reason why Trump is elected. Whether it's him or Tony Schwartz who actually wrote the art of the deal or these people who just gone out of their way to create like we were talking about a cult of personality around this man that has left us where we're at right now who's not even sexy like the rock <laughs> yeah see, see? Uh, it would be so different if if trump were evil but also he were just like so fine to look yeah. at you know <laughs> you'd be like oh he's stripping away my rights yeah. and descending america into fascism but god damn it do i want to fuck him that that those dimples yeah. god damn let's just say <laughs> you win that there's a reason why none of his merch has his face on it he's not a reagan okay he's not a fine See? you know he's not at all Ugh, just give me letters a on a red hat. <laughs> letters on a red hat. Wait, not a Reagan. He's not a Reagan. You want to knock boots with Ronnie Reagan? There's no one in America who didn't want to knock boots with Ronald Reagan. I'm telling you that right now. <laughs> in his prime. Oh, yeah. Bedtime for Bonzo era? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Come on. Newt Rockney all Fair. American. Perfectly coiffed yeah. hair. Fair. Yeah. Newt Rockney all up in this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> gross. Listen. You're gross. <laughs> if, the, if, if the van is Reaganomics, don't come a knock. <laughs> something, something trickled down in my bed? Yeah. <laughs> I condemn this whole conversation, et cetera. Yeah. Mm. All right, Aida. Let's go. Let's go. What is your keep it? It's just us right now because Lewis had to flee. Yeah. Lewis was like, keep it, Mark Burnett. <laughs> and then Mark Burnett voted him off the podcast. He's after to go audition for The Voice. <laughs> um, I, okay, I wish this were a light keep it. I wish there was some levity to this, but I'm really, really mad. My keep it this week goes to a little Canadian monster, not Keanu Reeves, but Tory Lanez. Uh, the rapper who I think is popular because of his close association with Drake. I, I, for some reason, can't name a single Tory Lane song, but sometimes I miss the zeitgeist. Fine. But after two months of not saying a single word about what happened in the Meg Thee Stallion incident in which he shot her foot, allegedly, sorry, I do not want any legal trouble, um... After this, he released a... That little Canadian nigga ain't suing you. <laughs> Bro, any nigga can come at you with a defamation claim. It's, it's been happened to me before. Even if I allegedly. believe Allegedly. Yes, let me, let me add in allegedly accused. I just got to keep adding that in. Come on, Star Jones. <laughs> Thank you. Allegedly. <laughs> so, so after this, after his, you know, very rowdy silence about it, he releases a 17-track album, and on one of the songs, he accuses men of straight up just framing him for the shooting and that, you know, it didn't happen and she's conspiring against him. Honestly, I don't have any words for that nigga other than fuck you. Like, just fuck you. Usually I'm pretty diplomatic in my keep it so I don't get, yeah, little flock of demon fans after me, but not today because fuck this man. Mm. This is an artist who, who people still support and he's being accused of one of the most heinous acts of violence to happen in mainstream hip-hop history in a very long time and his response is to release a fucking album like nowhere in the album does he show remorse apologize anything a sane and functioning human being would do but he uses the project to blame and to 
point fingers at other R&B singers and rappers who came out in support of Meg Thee Stallion. And if your first instinct as an artist is to make music and to make art about what's happening to you, like, I, I feel that. I, I understand. But this is bigger than art. This is bigger than music. It's bigger than profit. This is domestic violence. This is the haphazard disregard for the worth of black women. And it's also happening right at the peak of Breonna Taylor and her family not receiving any justice for what happened to her. So, like, the lack of awareness mm. this takes, the selfishness this takes, but also we are talking about a man who potentially shot Meg Stallion in the foot. And again, I say potentially for legal, legal issues. But you're trash. Like, you're so trash. That kind of evil, I feel like, can't be undone or retaught. So keep it to Tory Lanez. It's so fucking sinister. Yeah. You know, like, like I, I, described, I described it as sinister earlier this week. And I was like, that is the correct word. You know, mm-hmm. like, to release this project that nobody fucking wants the day after the grand jury um, reaches a verdict uh, in the Breonna Taylor case is so disgusting. You know, and uh, just the disregard for black women that so many people have around the world, Mm -hmm. in America, (laughs) in hip hop, you know, in the fan base, you know, like there were people, the people who made jokes about Megan after it first happened, fuck them. You know, the people who like continue, the people who continue to be like, well, fuck her, we're supporting him. I'm like, first of all, that nigga's music ain't even good enough. To, <laughs> to, to ride or to die pretend, for him. <laughs> to pretend, okay? What? He's you not know? good. He's not a, he's not a talented okay? musician. Like, and he only got a little bit of popularity recently because of that dumb demon time thing he was doing. And like the internet was excited to have something to do during the pandemic. But he is garbage. And so keep it to him. Keep it to anyone who supports him still. And the morons on his team that let him drop an asinine album right now and sometimes i'm like can we save niggas like this but like no you're just a morally and emotionally mm. compromised so bye i wish i wish tori would get in the opposite lanes of oncoming <laughs> yeah. traffic okay that was a good one that's actually a good one <laughs> wishing death i wonder what our lawyers will think about that <laughs> uh, ira what's, you, what's... you know what yom kippur is over i'm done atoning <laughs> Ruth is gone. What do I have to live for anymore? Uh, There's some atoning that needs to be done. (laughs) So I'm bringing myself to the Yom Kippur (laughs) time. Ira, what's your your keep it this week? Well, first of all, my first keep it is to Lady Gaga and her merchandise shop because months later, still have not gotten my Chromatica merch. And and I'm pissed. Wait, is this like a surplus? Like too many people are ordering? Or what do you think is going on? I think it's a thing that happens in merch where they don't have it actually made. And then they, um, so many people buy it. And then they have to start making it. And they just couldn't keep up. God, this. I canceled the order this week. I got my money back. Mm, Good, good. My real keep (laughs) it this week is to the expired milk version of Benedict Cumberbatch. (laughs) 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 Some of you may know him as Eddie Redmayne. Curdled Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Appropriate that I also call him that because he stole Benedict Cumberbatch's Oscar um, for the Imitation Game in 2015. When he was nominated for yeah, yeah, he was nominated for the Theory of Everything, um, and then he won, beating Benedict in the Imitation Game. 
I, um, I still can't believe that atrocious not, performance not, won. <laughs> not not that I even think Benedict should have won because I don't even love the imitation game that much. You know, like Michael Keaton could have won that year for Birdman, a mm. movie I also don't like. Um, Steve Carell probably should have won for Foxcatcher, if we're being honest. Uh, because Bradley Cooper was nominated for American oh, yeah. Sniper. I didn't like that damn movie either. <laughs> Honestly, uh, everybody that pickings. year was nominated. <laughs> everybody that year nominated for a movie I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> bad, bad, bad. <laughs> but Eddie Redmayne, if you recall, a while back said that he was supporting trans people, you know, in the wake of J.K. Rowling's uh, horrifically transphobic tweets. Recently, he ran that shit back uh, and was like telling us that, you know, we should we should feel sympathy for her because of the vitriol that she is getting on the Internet. And I wonder why. It's probably because they back filming um, Fantastic Bitches and Where to Find Them (laughs) 3. Just plain beasts. (laughs) And he's (laughs) trying. Right. Right. And he and he's like, oh, oh, shit. I can't fuck up the bag by supporting trans people. Fuck you, Eddie Redmayne. Because first of all, fuck the Danish girl and your whack ass performance in it. Uh, (laughs) And now she this woman is out here like truly. She is not just doing transphobic tweets. Like she is leaning into it. Like this, she this bitch has made being transphobic her brand. Yeah, she wrote a whole diatribe, like a whole. She wrote another sorcerer's stone about how much she hates trans people. <laughs> <laughs> practically, she, she has okay. too much time. She is sipping from the goblet of transphobia. <laughs> And oh Eddie Redmayne is like, oh, you know, you know what I should do? Talk about how there's 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 bad people on both sides, and people who are being mean to J.K. Rowling should probably stop it. Go shut the fuck up. <laughs> it's not the same thing, and it is asinine to even imply that people telling J.K. Rowling to shut the fuck up and stop being transphobic is the same thing as her continuing continuing to foster transphobic rhetoric mm-hmm. um, and continue to just like uplift other transphobes and turfs on the internet um, because I don't know the bitch has lost it <laughs> yeah, and like- he's lost it too so fuck both of them and fuck this movie I haven't wanted to see a Fantastic Beast movie since since the second one anyway, because um, Johnny Depp is in that movie, um, and she had um, no problem supporting Johnny Depp still uh, for her bottom line, so we should have known that she was going to be trash anyway. Boo. I I'm mean, disgusted. Just, yeah, and then actively using things like cancel culture to defend herself and to be like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm being attacked in this way. And you know, oddly enough, actually not that oddly, I expected this from Eddie from Eddie Redmayne. I did not expect him to come out initially in support of trans people. This is the more logical mm. thing for him to do. To be willing to be in Tom Hooper's movie, The Danish Girl, and to be playing a, a transitioning woman and to be, you know, eager to tell stories about transitioning that have nothing to do with you is kind of more in his wheelhouse, I think. So to have him even initially to come out in support of trans people, that was the real shocking thing. That was a real shocking thing. But unfortunately, he is just simply a beast. So, yeah, yeah, uh, and, and and as we've seen with um, the documentary disclosure, you know, it's like it's, mm. it's shit like that, you know, like 
men, um, cis men playing trans women, you know, that yeah. like give people the idea that trans women are just men, you know, wearing a dress, you know, mm -hmm. and that invites violence against them. Um, and so to be indirectly involved in that violence by choosing to participate in the Danish girl and then excusing violence and rhetoric against them by defending that horrid woman, JK Rowling. Fuck him. Yeah, fuck him. Fuck him. I also never trusted his eyes. <laughs> That's totally <laughs> But ever since the moment I saw Eddie Redmayne out in uh, Les Mis, I was like, ugh, something is off about this man and I can't put my finger on it. It was just evil. Always, it was just evil. <laughs> always looks like the beady eyes of a rat um, glowing in the corner of a... <laughs> <laughs> glowing in the corner of a crack house. <laughs> yeah, he's truly the like human Peter Pettigrew in that he was just a rat really recently. <laughs> So there's a little Harry Potter tie-in. We're done. We're done. God, both of our keepits were uh, deserved fuck yous. Trash men, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I think we could just accept that, like, Eddie Redmayne, he ain't delivering nothing that I need to see. Jupiter Ascending, mm -mm. bye. My week with Marilyn, no thanks. I loved your, <laughs> I loved your theory of everything tweet. <laughs> really oh, like when he's writing this Cadella's letter to J.K. Rowling, write a Cadella's letter to us for what you did to Stephen Hawking in the theory of everything. What a shitty uh, movie. No, not a fan. Not a fan. Uh, at least he lost in at least he lost in 2016 for his Oscar nomination for the Danish girl. Well, now I'm mad that he's up in the trial of the Chicago Seven. What do you mean? Because I'm actually looking forward to that. What do you mean? You know, the movie coming from um, Aaron Sorkin um, about the um, group of anti-Vietnam War protesters charged with conspiracy. Oh, yeah, uh, yes, yes. Citing riots at the 68 Democratic Convention in Chicago. Yeah. He's in it, but not playing a huge role. Maybe. I don't know. But <laughs> I'm still going to see that movie because um, my baby, Jeremy Strong, is in it. Kendall Roy himself, our little Emmy winner. One of the only last <laughs> white men that I died cuddle with still. Just <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah, I put it out there. Mm -hmm. What a whirlwind of an episode. I need you and I to figure out what our running jokes for the rest of 2020 are going to be now that I've abandoned Boss Baby and I haven't had a Knives Out from you, a Succession from you in a while. So work on that. That's your assignment. <laughs> they do have to happen naturally, uh, but we can contrive it. They tr they truly do. Well, I mean, maybe it's maybe it's Eddie and JK. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But the amount of times our nigga count goes through the roof when Lewis isn't here. <laughs> truly, truly. I mean, I, my favorite was when Roy Wood Jr. came in and was just like, "We listen, nigga." I'm like, "Yes, <laughs> this this is this is for us." <laughs> <laughs> we do miss you though, Lewis. You know, we really do. <laughs> we we need we need a we need a iron Aida variety on yeah, episode. Keep it black. <laughs> <laughs> the streets are not ready. But anyway. <laughs> thank you again to Britt Bennett for being here. Go read the vanishing half. It's fucking great. Uh and two more episodes until our one hundred and fiftieth. Wild. What was the word? Quintessential Sesquicentennial. I told a friend that recently, and they're like, ooh, you knew that off the top of your head, like Lewis. And I was like, bitch, I Googled that. I have Google too. <laughs> I have the same yeah. Google that Lewis has. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. We'll see y'all next week. 
Keep It is a production of Crooked Media. Caroline Reston is our producer. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Our digital team is Nadine Melkonian and Milo Kent. Thank you to Brian Sebel for production support every week. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.